You're listening to What the Dev, the weekly podcast of SD Times. And now, here's Jenna Sargent, news editor of SD Times. Hello, welcome back for another episode. This week, I spoke with Anupam Data, who is co-founder and chief scientist of a company called True Era, and they do testing for AI models. So I brought him on to talk about um, ChatGPT and how these generative AI models are actually tested. Um, we also talked about how the emergence of these solutions will kind of impact our world and also about some of the concerns over fairness and bias. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Anupam. I hope you like it. So to start off, can you can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Uh, hi, Jenna. I'm Anupam Dada. I'm co-founder, chief scientist, and president at Truera, which is a technology startup focused in on artificial intelligence. Uh, before I started the company, I was on the faculty at Carnegie Mellon University in the electrical and computer engineering and computer science departments for about uh, 12 years working in related areas. It's great to be on your podcast. Yeah, it's really great to have you. I know today we're going to be talking about generative AI. So I guess to set the stage, can you talk about some of the current use cases we're seeing? I know ChatGPT is obviously the big one that everyone's talking about right now, but what are some of the impacts on the industry? What are some of the impacts on the world? Yeah, that's a great question. Indeed, uh, this area of large language models such as ChatGPT is on everyone's minds right now. There's been tremendous progress over the last few years in this area. And the impact on the world can be truly transformative. I would say that I'm uh, very optimistic about the impact that is possible here, as well as uh, have a bit of a cautionary advice as we go about deploying them in lots of different use cases. One way in which I've been thinking about this space is uh, I have an eight-year-old daughter, and she engages in a set of activities. She reads, she writes, she does some arithmetic, um, she searches for stuff, she does small research projects in her school, uh, she does a little bit of coding. And as I think about technologies like ChatGPT, I do see a potential for their use in her life to be very significant in the next few years in a way that can be quite transformative. The way we search now, for example, say using Google, we get a list of results. Instead, we would be moving towards a world where you ask much more detailed questions and you get answers and then you have an interactive back and forth with a search interface that is powered by technology like chat GPT or uh, the analog of that from Google and various other companies. So the search experience, and I think back a little bit to the late 90s when I was in college, in the beginning, we were using Yahoo and Yahoo's classification directory to go down a tree of topics like if you're interested in music, then you go into 
rock and pop and and so forth to find a song. And and there were some simple search engines also available from Yahoo and a few other companies at that time. And then Google came and there was a big transformation. I feel like we're on the cusp of that transformation again now where search will no longer be one where you put in keywords and get a list of results that you have to wade through. You will start moving to a world where when my daughter is looking up her research topic around pandas or uh, such, she will be able to get much more detailed and specific answers to questions, almost like a question answering system. So that's one area which I think is primed for significant transformation. We are seeing some of that with uh, Bing's tie up with OpenAI, with some of the things coming out of Google and other other uh, startups in the space as well. Uh, Neva is one that's a, a sibling company of ours uh, with some of the same investors uh, that's doing some of the same kind of work. Um, another area, and this gets to some of the creative activities like writing or even coding, uh, you could imagine, and some of this is already happening, that these kinds of generative AI systems can not necessarily replace humans, but become a significant assistant in the writing process, in the process of creating content uh, or even coding. So we are seeing some of these early uh, examples of that. For example, uh, Copilot, which is this system out of Microsoft, was trained on a lot of code uh, from GitHub and other open source repositories and can now do a pretty good job of generating code for specific kinds of tasks. So the whole process of how we create code in software development processes could potentially go through another kind of significant uh, shakeup. Um, if you think about writing content, creating content for, uh, let's say, marketing content for various companies uh, or educational content in a certain area, these are all areas which are ripe for ripe for transformation. Uh, art is another area uh, that I see my daughter engage with, and, and uh, we are seeing now startups coming out of, that are supporting leveraging generative AI to support artists or fashion designers. Um, so so these are these are a few of the areas where um, and, and that you could imagine this also starting to impact other areas like medicine, uh, like law, where there's a lot of text processing work that is uh, done fairly laboriously, but there are nuggets of insights to extract. So those would be some of the big areas and the impact here can be significant, profound. But at the same time, the reason I'm cautiously optimistic is that it's also important to make sure that we carefully evaluate and test these models before they are fielded on an ongoing basis once they're in production to ensure that they're living up to the quality and performance characteristics and that they don't cause harm. Um, to society.
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that quality aspect? Like how are these models being tested to like kind of ensure they're behaving the way they're they're expected to? Yes, for sure. So um, in machine learning, when people think about evaluating models, there are a few different dimensions. And in the context of these kinds of generative AI and large language models in particular, I think there are a few or three main areas, I would say, that the evaluation and testing needs to be aware of. One is being aware of the end task that the model is being deployed on. So one kind of paradigm here that underlies this class of foundation models or large language models is that you train the large language model on a huge amount of unlabeled data. It could be all the text that there is on the internet. Um, and then you take that general purpose large language model, like a GPT-3, and then you fine tune it to specific end tasks. The specific end tasks could be, we were discussing a few examples of what they could be like. They could be um, a task that is aimed at uh, classifying sentiment for a specific domain. So let's say you're, you take the GPT-3 model, then you fine tune it on financial news data set to uh, assess the sentiment of certain kinds of stocks in order to pick stocks or build a portfolio. Or it could be fine-tuned to support uh, a specific kind of question-answering task. So often these end tasks will come with their metrics of goodness, if you will. Right? So with a stock-picking portfolio, then um, then the performance evaluation needs to be tied to how well it's actually doing in the market. Uh, some of the model characteristics around accuracy of models and so on, but also to the business KPIs that the model supports. Uh, if it's a question answering system, then uh, then you would want to understand how good of a job it's doing in terms of answering those questions. And, and that could be reflected again in the case, in cases where you have a labeled data set, you can measure some of the performance metrics and see how good of a job it's doing in terms of finding the right answers. But when you don't have labeled data sets, one thing that's very valuable in this context is to include human users as part of the evaluation process. So which is, I would say, the second pillar of evaluation. The, <clears throat> the first being determining how well the model is doing by examining how well it's doing for specific end tasks in which or which it's being used as a foundation, like a sentiment analysis task or some other kind of task. The second is bringing in the users into the evaluation process so that their input plays a role in assessing how well the model does. So if you go to question answering, and you may have seen this already if you played with ChatGPT, you ask a question, the, the AI system comes back with a response, and then you can indicate 
through a thumbs up or a thumbs down how good of a job it did in terms of answering your question. You can even ask follow-up questions and continue to have this kind of interactive dialogue and provide feedback on how well the system is doing. So this kind of human-in-the-loop evaluation in tasks, which will not necessarily have the standard kinds of evaluation metrics, is going to be extremely, extremely crucial. And it, it also speaks to how these models are designed and built in the first place. So one of the big innovations as we went from uh, the previous class of large language models like GPT-3 to something like ChatGPT was incorporating the technical innovation around reinforcement learning with human feedback. Uh, it's a complex name, but what it means is fairly simple. What it means is when the model was being trained, there was a set of uh, input from humans that helped it to learn how to make choices better. So it could mean, for example, that for a set of questions, the human provided not just is the right answer to this question, but given a choice of options, they actually ranked it saying, of these 10 possible answers, this is the best answer, this is the second best answer, this is the third best answer, and so on. Once you have a reasonable size repository of this kind of uh, information, then ChatGPT was able to learn a lot better how to make good choices in answering questions. So the very process of training these models includes a very important component around humans helping with education and training, if you will, of the model. And having that element also in the evaluation process is extremely important. So those are, the first one I said was having metrics specific to the end task, uh, which could be business performance metrics, or it could be model metrics. And the second thing is having humans looped, looped into the process of evaluation by providing them with interfaces to give feedback, simple versions of which we are already seeing in, uh, say, chat GPT-3. The third thing uh, is around having a multi-metric view of how the model is doing with respect to a set of uh, attributes or quality attributes or trustworthiness attributes, if you will, for models. So this could mean accuracy metrics, meaning how correctly is it answering questions, which is a very standard set of metrics in the context of machine learning models. But you could also have metrics for uh, around robustness of models, meaning if I change my inputs or prompts a little bit, does the output change only a little bit or does it change dramatically? If it changes, small changes in the input resulting in small changes in the output coming out of the model, that's an indicator of a robust model. Ideally, you want your models to be robust. A third kind of category is around fairness of models. You want to assess if the models are, do they have some form of representation bias where for certain kinds of um, information, they have learned historical biases from the data on which they've been trained, and that is impacting uh, what their outputs are like. So there were, for example, studies at one point showing that if you into a type 
into a search engine as you're typing, women should not. Uh, it does this autocomplete, which is essentially a language model, much like ChatGPT. If you start typing in when women should not, it starts filling it out as work uh, uh, and so on, right? Which it has learned because of historical bias in the in the data on which it was trained. So elements of representation bias are things to guard against. Uh, toxicity is something to guard against. Um, we had this example from some time back when Microsoft had put out a chatbot and, and then the users kind of trained it in a way that it started spouting a lot of racist talk. Uh, this is something to guard against as well. Uh, another kind of area is just the uh, the, uh, the the truthfulness, if you will, of the content, right? So sometimes, because these models are trained on huge amounts of data, they might very confidently say things that are factually incorrect. They can make stuff stuff up, uh, hallucinate, if you will. So thinking through and as process of evaluation. Being careful about sources. Uh, if the model is, let's let's think about search results. If uh, you ask a question to a model like this, and the model comes back with an answer, it's quite useful to know not just what the answer is coming out of the model, but what are some authoritative sources that could uh, verify that are corroborate the answer that came out of the model. So these are these are a few of the areas I would say that the testing processes need to have this kind of multimetric view of model accuracy, robustness, fairness, uh, toxicity related assessments, and then truthfulness related assessments and attribution to sources for model outputs as we start building up a much more trustworthy regime. And the other comment I'd add here very quickly is that this kind of evaluation needs to be done as the model is being built before it is fielded, as well as on an ongoing basis uh, through monitoring, because the input that is being given to the model can change over time. The world may change. Some of the relationships that held true before might no longer hold true, as a result of which how the model does with respect to all these different classes of metrics might dramatically shift over time. So it's important to keep an eye on them. Fantastic. Well, it was really great talking to you. I think this is an area that a lot of people are interested in, but maybe don't know like what's going on underneath. So it's it's always good to to dive into what's what's really happening under the surface. That's our episode for today. We hope you've enjoyed it. Bye.